Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in our country's armed forces. On this series, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and experiences. We'll talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector and we'll discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good afternoon, Scott Luton with Veteran Voices. Thanks for joining us here today. We've got an outstanding show teed up with a veteran that's part of the largest and oldest environmental organization in the state, so stay tuned for that. Hey, but a quick programming note before we get started here. This program is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming. Uh, You can find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Just search for Veteran Voices, and you can also check us out on social media. If you've got a veteran with a story to tell, reach out, and we'll see if we can't make that happen and get you on the recording schedule. So thanks very much for tuning in today as we talk with our featured guest, Lornette Vestal, Southeastern Campaign Representative with the prestigious Sierra Club Military Outdoors. Lornette, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Scott. Thanks for um, inviting me. You bet. Well, you know, it's been a couple of years since we met at a Vetlanta event, which I know we both are, are big believers in, vetlanta.org. But I'm really looking forward to not only diving in a little bit more to your military background, those experiences, your transition, but then, you know, some other issues that you've got your finger on the pulse of and are passionate about. Well, yeah, let's, let's, let's get right into it, Scott. Fantastic. You taught my language. I love it. All right. So for starters, let's get to know you the person a little bit more. So where are you from? And, and you know, give us an anecdote about your upbringing. Originally from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I know down in Georgia, they like to say Illinois. <laughs> but it, it, it's Illinois. And I guess my childhood, I could say, was a little bit complicated. Um, I was adopted. Um, very fortunate. So I guess the antidote, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I guess I can say... Perhaps family is, is always been important to me, um, especially being at a point where, you know, I, I wasn't with my, you know, family and then and was adopted by a brand new family. And that became my family. But now I, I'm connected with biological family and my adopted family. Well, I don't like kind of make those distinctions. They're all just mm, my family. All family. Uh, <laughs> for better, for worse, um, has always with family. But that, that's kind of how, how I feel. So did you, you grew up in Chicago then? Yes. Before I joined the military, yeah, uh, 17 years in Chicago, Illinois. What an awesome city, uh, world city. Yeah, looking back, what's your, uh, and you live in the greater Atlanta area now, right? Yes, I live in All Atlanta, right. Georgia nowadays with my wife, and uh, I've got two vicious beasts named Stella and Mayer, uh, no children, but I'm an uncle many times over. So uh, <laughs> best thing about that is you can give it, when they start crying or break their, bust their nose or whatever, you can give them back to mommy and daddy. <laughs> <laughs> so. What what was one of your favorite things about growing up in, in the city of Chicago? One thing I always remember growing up is the city's right on the lake. So when we go visit the lake, it was always like an awesome time because it's just like you go there. And then on ironically joining the military and the Navy, to be exact, you know, Lake Michigan, if you're none of the wiser, it could look like it looks like the sea or something like that. Right. Like, oh, just nothing but... <laughs> Miles and miles of water uh, for that far that I can see. And also um, the cold. And I know that might seem strange to folks down here in Georgia because, like, you know, 30 degrees is cold here. 
But I think the cold of Chicago, those several months of winter that we have up there, builds a lot of character. And we appreciate the warm weather a lot more. (laughs) Because when I got stationed in, in and when I joined the military, I was stationed in San Diego. And it's like 70 degrees and sunny all the time, barely rains. I mean, they might have fire season every now and then, but that's about it. So people are kind of just like, oh, 75 degrees again today. (laughs) Where in Chicago, it's, you know, you have hellacious winters, polar vortexes, um, school closed down. When they close down a school in Chicago or in the Midwest general during wintertime, that's really cold. And when I say really cold, when they close it down, I'm talking about like it's high negative 25 wind chill. Wow. Um, So if it's a snowstorm, you're going to school. Kids, get out there. It builds character. (laughs) <laughs> 10 feet of snow, you just shovel your way to school. Love it. Love it. Uh, what, a, what a great visual. All right. So you've referenced joining the military a couple times now. Mm-hmm. You served in the U.S. Navy. What made you join the military, Ornette? Uh, well, it was a couple of things. Um, I had a grandfather who I never had the pleasure of knowing who served in the Navy during World War II. And my uncles had all been Army men. And I had the pleasure of taking an Army ROTC in high school. And I had a, a sergeant, Sergeant First Class Weber, who uh, probably <laughs> shouldn't have shared his Vietnam stories with, the, with high school students, <laughs> but he, he indulged us many, many times over. <laughs> so I was like, I don't think I'll be joining the Army. So the Navy seemed like the better option as far as, like, traveling, because some I had an uncle who was like, yeah, I, I joined the Army. Then they sent me down to, like, Georgia. So, like, did you go to Atlanta? That seems cool. He's like, no, I went to like Fort Bennett. That's not Atlanta. I was like, oh, I'm like, I don't want to go to Fort Bennett or Fort Knox. I want to go somewhere cool. And then I talked to the Marine recruiter, and he was like, you'll be a real man, join the Marines. And I thought about all the Sergeant Weber's Vietnam stories, and I was like, the Marines and Army are kind of similar, so I'm good with that. I want to travel the world a little bit if we got to go to war, if, you know, it's the military. So that was always in the back of my head. But I was like, the Navy gets to travel. Travel yeah. was a big, big part of, of selecting the Navy, it sounds like. All right, so let's talk, let, let's dive in deeper into your military career. So in the Navy, what was, uh, in the Air Force, they call it AFSC. In the Army, they call it MOS, I believe. What, what, how did you, what, what's the acronym they use for your job in the Navy? Yeah, so in the Navy, they call it RATE. Right, that's right. So I should remember that. RATE. Yeah. All the all the branches of service are very, are are different. So working with vets, they're like my MOS, my MOS, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but to civilian speak, it just means your job. So my um, rate in the Navy or job was ship serviceman, and what that means is I worked in this commercial supply side of the Navy at the time. I I don't think they have that rate anymore. I think they combined it with shopkeeper. But I'm going to get into like the weeds of Navy life. <laughs> So let's keep it simple for our, our non-veteran and non-Navy listeners. So um, what my job entailed was we worked in uh, commercial sales. So there was a, we're in the middle of the ocean. The only store you can go to is a ship store. So you get, we, get, we, bring the P, we bring the NEX right to the sailors and Marines on board during deployment and, uh, when we're underway. So I spent uh, several years working in a uh, ship store. So it wasn't that hard of a transition from civilian life because my first job was working at track auto. So I was a cashier there. So I get to be a cashier in the Navy. So cool. <laughs> Did you get involved in uh, the, log- you know, the, the logistics and replenishment and, and supply chain of, of making sure you've got the right inventory levels and whatnot? Oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, once I, once I got a little more, little bit of rank, so um, came petty also uh, third class. So E4, we had to, you know, order stores um, and, we're in the middle of the ocean, so how do you get supplies to you? 
that means the helos come drop that drop those babies off pallets right there on the flight deck and um some of my shipmates you know were i should have learned how to drive four lifts lifts i should have went to fort lift school i didn't i went to another i went to um ordering store so i knew how to you know order that i had to go to a two-month school for that during my time so you know candy health and comfort items this early 2000s so cds dvds video games video game systems so that commercial supplies also ship servicemen were in charge of ships laundry so we you know got to keep the got to keep the crew clean got to keep your uniforms clean so we had laundry room on the ship presses the big steam things that come down <laughs> and make the creases on your uniform yep. pretty squared away. So I was always squared away for inspection. And um, the Marines, um, they always like, hey, we got to get, we got to be friends with the supply guys. They, they got, everybody wants to be friends with you because um, <laughs> you had access to the, to the gee dunk machines or candy machines, but we call them gee dunk because this Navy sailors still talk like 1777 um, <laughs> pirates. Um, and then soda machines. So I used to load the soda machines also. And also served time as a ship's barber. So I got hmm. to cut hair, all that good stuff. So wow. uh, fun so, times. Yeah, very diverse in terms of all the different activities and functions that you served, it's especially really valuable, I would imagine, in maintaining morale when you're out at sea for months on end and they don't have access to all the, the comforts we all have here on the civilian side and, and as, you know, as private consumers. So what ships did you serve on? Lornette. So um, I, I did four years from 2001 to 2005. I started aboard the USS Cleveland, and either it is a museum in Hawaii or it is a coral reef right now because I think they – I believe they decommissioned it in 2009. So I don't know exactly the, the fate of the, the USS Cleveland, but it was commissioned in 1967, so during the Vietnam War. Was that a um, – was that like a frigate? No, it was the um, land and transport dock, so LPD-7. So um, what we call it in the Navy is the Gator Freighter. So we, we, it took on Marines and their equipment, and then we dropped them off, and then they uh, stormed the beach, <laughs> the beaches. So we hauled around Marines. Bear with me here because uh, I've never, you know, never served in the Navy. I was Air Force. The task forces approach always fascinated me how they build those things around aircraft carriers was that what a couple task forces that the USS Cleveland was was part of do you remember well I know we were a part of the uh what is this it was the fifth fleet not the, I don't think believe the seventh fleet I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting this stuff because it was 15 years ago so right not off the top of my head but we were part of the, that battle group and gotcha. we always I would always joke and say the aircraft carriers were the pride of the Navy because they got 5,000 people on deployment on that one ship the, you know, the jets land on them. And, and just a fun fact, I, I believe that the Navy has more, more jets than the Air Force. <laughs> so just a Ouch. little, a little rub there for you Air Force folks. <laughs> and they have to land a, land a plane on a ship in the middle of the ocean. So that's like that a little, right. small landing strip. If you miss, well, you know, you, you'll, you'll be in Davy Jones life. So um, those, <laughs> those pilots, any type of pilot are, are pretty, pretty squared away, but yeah, trying to land a jet on a ship in the middle of the ocean was great. But we did do some workups during deployment in 2003 with Army pilots because our ship, we couldn't take on, um, like, we weren't an aircraft carrier. We were a smaller class. But the Harrier jets that hover. Be told. And also the Helos, we could uh, take those on. So we worked with some Army pilots who were flying their Helos uh, to land on ships. So that was during uh, 2003, um, mm. Operation Iraqi Freedom. So we went up mm. to... Uh, outside of Alaska, because we ported, mm -hmm. we pulled into 
Anchorage, Alaska. So that was my first time going to the great white north. Fascinating pilot, pilots in the military, the, the conditions they face and the challenges all in, in, the, in the art of being able to project force. It's amazing. You know, those pitching decks, even in calm seas, right? All the movement. I mean, it's it's just amazing. And all the people, the people, the the, the ground crews, you know, the conditions they face as they support uh, aviation in the Navy and other branches. It's really just fascinating. Oh, yeah. The, the ships themselves are, you know, they're wondrous machines because you get, you know, this giant steel, you know, floating, you know, warship. And you have all these different crews. You, know, you have operations who are, you know, navigating. You have, you know, the signalmen who are, you know, communicating. You have the IT guys who are, you know, uh, tracking and, and getting information. You got the machinist mates in the in the engine room because we we're, you know, older ship, so a steam engine. And I believe during deployment we we had two engines, but we were only running floating on one. So <laughs> that was really? interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, another thing people don't understand about the Navy because I know the the Marines and the, and the Army guys and gals they like to make fun of us, like you know, you guys are the real military. You're just in a ship. So we'll see how fast the Marines run when there's a fire on the ship. Guess who has to go put the fire out? So we may not be shooting at people all the time, but we are, when it's a fire, we can't call 911. The sailors have to put it out. And since, you know, I was one of the junior sailors, I was on a fire team. So I, we had to go into the main space and fight the fires. Wow. So fun times. One last question, and I want to get to the people that you served with. I think, if I understood you correctly, you mentioned that the aircraft carriers might get all the glory or all the attention. And those are just, I think, what, 11 or – I think there's only 11 or 12 vessels. And the Navy, of course, is a 200-vessel-plus fleet. That we yeah. need to give more attention to all the other ships, right? Yeah. yeah we, we, they should give us some love. But I guess, you know, they're, we just haul around Marines, and, you know, the Marines are just like – they pile them up in there. We thought our quarters were tight. The Marines' quarters were pretty tight unless they were, like – officers or something like that the, with the grunts they, they they were in tight spaces um but we had fun it was, it was a lot of it was a lot of i don't know if i can curse on this podcast I mean, it's a vet podcast sure. <laughs> so it was a lot of shit talking um, between the sailors and marines but also good friends and my brother-in-law was, was a marine so he has a lot of navy jokes every time i go around him and i just say marine stands for my ass rides around in navy equipment and also stand in line because every time it's a line on the ship, they just stand there. All right, hurry up line. and wait. Hurry is up it, and is wait. It, is it child? Is it? Why are we in this line? I don't know. Is the ship store open? I don't know. We're just gonna. <laughs> we're just, we don't have anything to do but work out and like and eat and sleep and clean and clean their weapons. So on, they really on, enjoy ship life, the Marines. But they get the, to ride around on the Gator Freighter, as you call it. Gator I believe, Freighter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, nowadays they'll call it the Uber for Marines. Since the, the smart asses. All right. So let's talk about some of those good times and some of those relationships and brothers and sisters at arms. Let's talk about some of the people you serve with or, or maybe those that worked for you or those that maybe you worked for, those you worked beside. Who are some characters that really stand out to this day? Our second command master chief was a guy named Master Chief Butt, and he was a big guy. Like He liked to work out, but he was a bit older. He was probably like in his 50s, but he was mm. the master chief. And he had these really thick, thick glasses, really big guy, like Arnold Schwarzenegger big. And like, but probably taller than Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was like the funniest guy ever. And he had this really high-pitched high pitch voice. So I'm like, how's it going, Petty Austin Vessel? What the, what the fuck? And all the sailors were hanging out in the ship store, and he'd come in the ship store. You know, that's my post, so I worked there. But all the junior sailors was just, sometimes they'd be in there shooting the shit, and he's coming in and yell, get, get, you guys get the fuck out of here. And then he'll come and shoot the shit with me, 
for like an hour or so. So he, he was a funny guy, and uh, he, he offered to write me a letter of recommendation once I was getting out. Uh, was and Master Chief time, Bud, Master is that Chief right? Bud, like B-U-D-D. Uh, he, was, he was hilarious and a good guy. And then we had um, SH1 Lee, and he was a character. He, he kind of looked like Jim Carrey, but with muscles. And, uh, you know, I had a shipmate, another guy that um, I'm still friends with, um, Johnson, who he did 14 years in the, in the Navy. And uh, he got out a few years ago. He, he's building jets for Boeing right now. But uh, Johnson was a ship serviceman like me, or um, I guess what they would call it. Uh, well, Petty Officer First Class or um, Division Leader was um, SH-1. And he was a, quite a character. And one time he came in the ship's, ship's barbershop to, um, you know, kind of set uh, my buddy Johnson straight. And he was Johnson was cutting somebody's hair. So the guy... And the chair was like, you know, had the barber cape on and all that. So Lee is just, you know, chewing Johnson out. And the guy in the chair is getting pissed off, like more and more pissed off. The guy in the chair is just like, hey, petty officer, you know, you need to stand down. And he's like, who the fuck are you? You shut the fuck up, Marine. So the guy gets up, takes off his cape. He's a Marine Corps captain. So he's SH1, Lee's like, oh, oh my God. Oh, shit. Sorry, sir. And, you know, you, the one thing you don't want to ever see in your life is a pissed off Marine. So. I bet. Those are the people I want to have on my side, not 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 against me. So, I'm and we used to we, we used to shit talk, you know. Sh when we and he would get off, he get beat red and like kind of you know embarrassed, like oh guys, come on out, you can't you can't say that stuff because you know we had to make deployment fun. So we're like, yes, boss, we come. He's like, you can't call me, don't call me boss. Like, but you're our boss, you're technically our boss, you're our petty officer first class. Like people were gonna because Johnson and I were both black guys, and he was like, oh, you, you think. People are going to think I'm racist. I'm not racist. I'm like everybody. But, oh, come on, SH1. We, you know, we can call you boss. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he, he was a character. Johnson, he was a, um, a shipmate from uh, Altadena, California. And he was, he was quite the character. He, he was definitely, he, he embraced the, the Navy's uh, core value of drink to the phone. Of what? Drink to the phone. Drink to the phone. So, like, okay. the beer, and you drink it down, it's just the phone left. So oh. that's in the, that's in the uh, anchors away. That's that's you. what we learned in boot camp. That's our our Navy fight song, and we got drinking in it. And uh, Johnson, um, he he lived to those he lived to those standards. But he was a good guy. And um, and my buddy Eason, who was a machinist mate, and we're still friends. I, heck, I got I got a picture of him with his wife in my in my in my library room mm -hmm. right above me. So that's him right there. And what's so funny is Johnson and Eason like would always like shit talk to each other. And during our whole deployment back in 2003, Johnson, he had a, had a kid. Well, his wife had a, had a baby, and, you know, obviously we were deployed, so it's not like he can see them besides, like, pictures from emails and things like that or letters from his wife and, um, at the time and all that. So Johnson's like, man, we ain't never going home. We just stuck on this fucking shit in the middle of no goddamn where. And Easton would just shit talk and say, uh, is Johnson in here? Mr. We ain't never going home. We never going home. We just never going to go home. <laughs> but it's all fun. We, we have to make deployment interesting because out in the middle of the ocean, you know, I joke around and said I joined the Navy to see the world and I, I saw from the side of the ship. So, you know, we, we floated past Singapore. We floated past the Philippines. We saw, you know, um, Bahrain from, uh, not Bahrain, but Kuwait. We saw Kuwait from the side of the ship while the Marines, you know, got off and um, marched through to uh, get to Iraq. So, yeah, so when people ask, how was the Navy? Yeah, well, I saw the world from the side of the ship. It sounds like um, a great group of folks that you were able to keep it light with. I'm sure there were plenty of times that, that you had to be serious and disciplined like any branch. But, uh, you know, being able to keep light, keep loose, 
especially when you're, I mean, kind of take an analogy from 2020, you know, here we're remote or work from home. We're quarantined in some cases, lockdown. We're all yeah. trying to find different ways of, you know, maintaining a, a healthy mental uh, state, right? Yeah. And, and part of that, as you're describing, at least what I'm taking from you, is keeping, maintaining that sense of humor while you do the mission at hand. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I forget it was, uh, I forget his name. It was a Marine. Well, we had a couple of few Marines that were pretty awesome. Um, it was a warrant officer. He always would come around and be like, we all the way up in there. And then we had, uh, we had a gunnery sergeant, McLean, and he was also a big guy who worked out a lot. And, he, you know, he was always like, hey, what's going on, Petty Officer Vesta? And then it was another Marine who was deployed with us. He was a captain. He was, officer, he was a Marine Corps officer. And he took a liking to me for some reason. And he like, Petty Officer Vesta, you know, come here. And he's like, I'm going to show you the Marine blood show. So, you know, he'll, he'll do me, like put me, in a, you know, put me to sleep. And then he'll tell me to do that to him. So I was like, you know, he's like, do it. And he's like, sir, I don't know if I should like pretend to be choking you off on the mess deck. You know, people around, you know, I don't think like I'm attacking a, you know, attacking a senior officer. Do it. You know, be a goddamn man. Sorry. All right, sir. It's a direct order. So I put him in a blood choke. He's like, got to get it tighter. So, you know, and every, every, every day he'd come down, show me a new like way to harm someone. And one time SH1 Lee caught me and he's like, I had him in like an arm bar. And SH1 was like, oh my God, stop, stand down, Fatty Austin. It's like, like, no, it's all right. It's all right. We're just fucking around. I was like, <laughs> I was like hey, it was his idea, Fatty Austin. Uh, SH1 Lee, it, it, it's him. I, I was just following orders. He told me to put him in an arm bar in a rear necker choke. I, I just, hey. Following orders. Following follow orders. That's yeah. right. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about, I love the characters and love as you describe them, the folks that you served with, a lot of great visuals there. Let's talk about accomplishments, right? And clearly you had a lot of different functions, a lot of different places served, a real meaningful role, especially when it comes to getting the troops what they need supplies-wise and maintaining morale. But what, what do you look back at accomplishment-wise and, and take big pride in? The two biggest things that I uh, get from my time uh, on the ship is I want to say the first and foremost is just kind of working with folks from so many different backgrounds. So, you know, we had folks who were, you know, uh, Chinese, Filipino, um, different parts of Latin America, um, people from Europe, um, folks from all over the country, um, people who came from working class backgrounds, rural communities, urban cities, um, some folks who were well off, um, who came, who were legacy, like their dad was like an admiral. And they were like an ensign, new to the Navy. It was like, I don't want to follow my dad's footsteps. So I'm getting out. <laughs> uh, but it was an interesting cast of characters and people you met from all different walks of life. And the best thing is just kind of getting to know them um, a whole lot. So, you know, I remember uh, Petty Officer First Class. He was a, was a, um, he was a cook, uh, MS1 Ferreira. And he was Filipino. And he kind of, was, like, he, he taught me a lot about the history of the Philippines and um, what went on in Manila and kind of why a lot of you know, folks um, from the Philippines joined the Navy and kind of what it was like and how it changed. Gave me some history. So, you know, talking about Lapo Lapo, who was like when the year the Spanish first came, they kind of like awesome because they're like, we don't know who these people are. <laughs> uh, so it, it was just a lot of cultural exchanges and learning about different people's culture, background, history. And then I, I guess the second thing is my last day on the ship getting discharged. And, then, you know, we were out to sea. So, they had to fly me out on Hilo. That was pretty cool. But um, just earning the respect of my uh, crewmates, because on that last final day, I was awarded the Navy Achievement Medal for the second time around. And then uh, when I when I was you know leaving on the flight deck, the uh, air crew um, 
some good friends there, like my um, buddy um, Perkins, who uh, rest in peace, he passed away a few years ago from cancer. But um, they all stood and gave me a salute, and I saluted in the back and got on the helo before I get out. So um, that was really, you know, proud to see that, you know, I got shipmates, you know, earn their respect. And then, you know, just kind of um, one of the things I do miss about the military is, like, if you do your job and you do it well, you, you earn the respect um, no matter who you are, what you look like what your gender is. It's like you bust your ass, you do your job, you, you earn people's respect. And I think that's something that the civilian world can learn about because it, 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 it's very different, which I, which I learned when I, when I got out. Well put. So much there that you shared. Really sorry to hear about your friend Perkins that lost his, his, his battle with cancer, I believe. Um, hate to hear that. But I love what you talk about. You describe the level of diversity within the military and how you can, you, you, the relationships there, the commitment to get the job done. It just breaks through the differences in culture and, and walks of life. And you, you become educated in, in different people's perspectives and, and POV. I, I shared that experience with you. And, and you know, I, I learned a ton of things from a, a variety of folks that I served beside. And that is, that's certainly one of the best things about being in the military. And I really I agree with you. I, w- I wish that could carry over and that the private sector could learn a lot from, from that. But uh, we're going to dive more into that momentarily. Let's talk about your transition, Lornette. Uh, that's for so many that's continues to be a, a ever challenging journey. And you can probably, I don't know, Lornette, if you can hear, I've got some cardinals just outside my window and they are not happy about something. So you might can hear them coming through the microphone here. But <laughs> I um, thought all right. <laughs> Someone's probably trying, a hawk is probably trying to get some of their babies. <laughs> Atlanta is the city in the forest. So. Yes, it is. All right. So let's talk about your transition. Let's talk about, you know, what was that like? going through it, how challenging or how, for some folks, it, it's not as challenging. Talk to, talk to us a bit about your transition. Yeah, so that's, um, no, that's a great question. And kind of the work I do now with the Sierra Club is kind of like, you know, grabbing people doing that transition, whether they got out a month ago or 20 years ago. And it's really interesting because, you know, both being service members, we have boot camps. That's two, three months, depending on, you know, where you're at and you have your MOS. That could be anywhere from two months to like, you know, a couple of years, depending on your, your job, MOS or rate or whatever you like to call it, depending on your respective branch. But at the, the MEPS, at least when I got out in 2005, it was a couple of days course. The guy, you know, who was running the course was a, a former sailor himself. And he's like, you don't have to shave anymore. It's great. Uh, handshake. And here's your DD-214, which, you know, hang on to that. That's the most sacred piece of paper. I have my original one, but I also have like tons of copies of that. <laughs> I can never, uh, never, ne- never lose that's a, a vital piece of paper. They can bury me with that one. But um, I think the problem becomes, especially since the you know, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other conflicts, is that transition piece. It should be, you know, you have a boot camp to get in, you should have a boot camp to get out. And it was hard for me in particular because I went out, I got out and went to college. I did some college courses at the uh, community college in San Diego. Uh, for, you know, a year or so, but, you know, I was coming out being a, a sailor on deployment, um, seeing a lot of things, traveled to different countries, met all types of characters, had interesting experiences. Some were PG, some were R-rated, but um, that's for another podcast for another time. But coming into a classroom setting and you have, you know, folks who are, you know, I went to NIU, Northern Illinois University, which is in um, northeast of Chicago, about 60 miles out. And 18, 19 years old, first time away from home. And, you know, I had been on deployment 
and although I was not too much older than some of the you know, freshmen in college, you know, being a freshman myself or just a, a little bit above a freshman, like a sophomore, um, I was 22 years old and had, you know, been in deployment, been to a, you know, a war zone, you know, if it was a fire on the ship, like I said earlier, we, we had to fight it, all type of things. So all my experiences were far different from, you know, the person who came from Frankfurt, Illinois, and they were like the first time away from home. Like they didn't know how to wash their clothes or cook their, cook their own meals and things like that. And I was like, ah, shit, man, I, I, I done, I done all that. Um, so that was the hardest part because I, I joked around when I was a sailor and, uh, you know, some of the officers I, I dealt with and if there are any officers, uh, listening, you know, don't, no offense. Uh, but you know, you meet some guys and like, if you went to college, I can go to college. We must not be that hard. <laughs> but it's the gals, but the gals are pretty smart. The guys, some of the guys, some of the officers. Yeah, but no, no, I, I got, I got a good, a good mentor of mine, Mr. Side, who, who was my divisional officer. You know, we didn't like each other at first, but we slowly earned each other's respect and we still keep in touch to this very day. But, um, that was, a, I think that was the toughest part because I had an ideal of college and that really wasn't it. And then I had a, a Marine Corps uh, vet who was also a, a grad student in psychology and he kind of recommended I join a fraternity. But I kind of like, I was already kind of in a, I was already in a fraternity, you know, it's a military, you know, we got right. a fraternity with guns. And, you know, after you become a shell back when you cross the equator and you got that, you know, hazing ritual, which the Navy does not do. I don't think I could have some 18 year old, you know, kid who had no real life experience yet. You know, he had his growing up, but like he's just fresh in college and yelling at me, you know, and being coming a line brother. So I was like, I don't think I can, I already was in a fraternity and I, I don't think it could compare. So it was kind of, I was really on my own. And the cultural had, divide. It sounds like a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, I'm sure it's the same way for folks who are a little bit older in their thirties and forties and fifties who return to college full time. And they're in classes with 18 years old, 18 year olds. And it's just, you know, nothing gives anybody who's 18 or 19. It's just kind of once you, once you, you have certain life experiences or you're a certain age, you're, you just have different perspectives about things. It's just kind of how, how life is. Change happens whether you like it or not. So I think that was the toughest part. But I had, I met a good friend of mine who I'm still a friend with on that Ulysses. And he kind of introduced me to sweat lodges. And that's something that even the Sierra Club Military Outdoors has incorporated. Um, post pre-COVID to our, our, our audience, where it's like a, a Native American, you know, cleansing ritual. Mm -hmm. That really helped me kind of transition with the, you know, mental health struggles I was dealing with, huh. um, just kind of transitioning. You know, he wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't a military, he wasn't a vet, he, he was a civilian, but, you know, good guy, kind of introduced me to that and kind of helped me uh, connect with myself, connect with nature, kind of cleanse. And, and it's very interesting because the Native American community, for their veterans, they have that community that they help them kind of adjust from war. And I think the problem is that a lot of vets who get out, uh, who are on the battlefield front lines, they don't have that. You know, we should have some some type of transition. And that's why I have a program like Military Outdoors. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that momentarily. You shared so much there. I love the your sentiment about, hey, you got a boot camp to get in. We need to get, get a boot camp to get out. That, that well put. Lornette, and also you were talking about you know the difference in experiences and and trying to reacclimate to to uh, society on the private side and how challenging that can be, especially when you've experienced some of the things that, that you're alluding to. And it sounds like to me a best practice 
if you're speaking to others that are getting ready for their transition or, or fighting through their transition or what have you, is finding a great mentor. They don't have to have prior military experience. They really just need to care and have some experience, it sounds like to me. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Let's talk about more advice. So I think there's plenty I'm already taking away from this, but if you're speaking directly to those that are getting ready, maybe they're in uh, terminal leave or maybe it's before terminal leave, maybe they're smack dab in the middle of their transition, or maybe they're already out, they're experiencing some of the, the bad days that we all had probably in our transition. What, what are some tips and some advice that you offer them? I didn't really think about this until I started my current position with the military outdoors and, you know, connecting to nature and connecting veterans to nature and healing through nature. But when I was making my transition, I did a summer in Costa Rica with Habitat for Humanity. And it was, you know, very different from my you know, military experience. I mean, I went there as a volunteer and had a fantastic time, but also bought the, bought the military stuff with me, the good and bad. So, you know, got to a couple of, you know, probably drank a little bit too much, but, um, but the, the flip side of it, the positive side is I went to a whole nother country, whole nother culture, did some volunteer work, met some great people, beautiful, nice people of Costa Rica, and uh, some really interesting um, volunteers. And we, we spent the weekends, you know, hiking. Uh, whitewater. First time I ever whitewater rafted was in Costa Rica. Our, our raft capsized, and, you know, luckily I had a helmet on. We hit, I hit a rock, so I got the scar. I'd rather have the scar than, uh, than you know, <laughs> <laughs> not be here. Did not so, have the head, right? Yeah, yeah. And the funniest thing is our rap guy instructor, I'll never forget him. He was a guy named Phil. Was, I don't know. I don't know if he was from South Carolina or Georgia, but he was a big, big white guy, had a big, big beer belly. He spoke fluent Spanish, but he spoke with a very thick southern accent. It was the weirdest thing. And, you know, I'll never forget Phil because, he, you know, I thought I was going to die. You know, I hit that water. And we were, you know, underneath the raft, and he pulled me out. And then apparently I didn't know this. I had a friend of mine who was on the graph with us, named Christy, who lives in uh, Seattle. Well, not in Spokane, Washington. She told me, she's like, Lurnette, you were like an action hero today. Once Phil pulled you in, you pulled in like several people on the, in a raft. And that's like, I never had no raft training before. I never been to White Roy Raft. Wow. That was just kind of like that military training when like it's a shit. Instinctive. You, know, you just go into like saving people, pulling, you know, pulling your shipmates in. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so maybe, you know, that, that's the good thing. But I think it does, I think, that was really good for me to kind of take that summer before I went to college and got out of the military to just not go home, but kind of do something very off the beaten path and just kind of like connect with nature, connect with, you know, people of different cultures and kind of just see another part of the world that, that you're not have to get up at four 30 in the morning and go to drill or anything like that. You just do that transition period. So I didn't, I didn't know at the time what I was doing, but I think that was, that's good. And I think the, Good thing about now, 2020, is when I got out, the only thing I knew about was the VA and Wounded Warrior Project, because I think at that time, 2005, that's probably all there was. And now you have so many great organizations. You know, you have one locally like Vetlanta, but you got one nationally like Team Red, White, and Blue, Team River Runner. You got uh, Outward Bound, our program, the Military Outdoors, Sierra Club. So you have so many veteran, helping veteran programs that can help you transition. And you can be, you can find a new crew, mm. a new, a new pack, a new, new squadron, battalion, division, whatever you want to call it. Flight. So, flight crew. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, so on that note, and that is some of the good news here, despite some of the challenging 
dynamics that remain as it relates to our transition, our veterans transition, it, it has gotten better, to your point, a lot more resources, a lot more support. Even corporate America has gotten more serious about hiring and leaning in and really understanding veterans and their spouses, right, because we've yeah. got to take care of all of them. But if you would speak to one, one final question about your transition, speak to, you know, veterans we don't like, and I'm going to generalize here, at least a lot of them that I serve with, we don't like, you know, being vulnerable or being seen as vulnerable or, or being seen as needing help. Uh, can you speak to that a bit and why it's important that folks need to reach out and get the help that they may need? Yeah, I was one of those people, you know, 2006, you know, just like deployment, fast forward, I'm in college, finals and all that stuff. And I spent like six months with insomnia and anxiety. And, you know, it was related to, you know, PTSD and things of that nature. And I didn't, I didn't know at the time, but I, you know, kind of mustered the courage and I had a, a a Marine Corps vet who was a psychology major, and he's like, man, you know, come come to the Student Resource Center and, you know, talk to somebody. And, you know, uh, he ended up actually being uh, my one of my counselors. He was he was not the official counselor because he was still a, a grad student, but he worked with the, the therapist, and and we talked, and, and that really helped me out at that time to, you know, stop my assignment and kind of focus a lot of things. And I'm grateful to this day that, you know, Francisco was, was there to help me out. And I think a lot of times we kind of suffer silently um, because in the military, you know, it's supposed to be tough and ready to go and always, you know, ready for action. And when you have fun, you have fun. When you work hard, you work hard. But I think nowadays the VA has a better understanding of PTSD, veteran suicide, veteran loneliness, um, risk for homelessness. And I will say this, the men and women who, and the people who work at the VA, they understand, and, you know, they're not perfect, no one is, but I think they're doing a hell of a lot better nowadays than what, when, when we were in 2005, and yeah, also the different resources. So I think the first thing is just, just recognizing that you have an issue, and that doesn't make you weak, that doesn't make you less of a person, that doesn't make you less of a Marine, Airman, Marine, Sailor, that, like you're a human being. You have, you have you have good days and bad days, and if you talk to somebody, don't feel like you know you're 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 weaker somehow. And I think what's really cool is, is the vet centers that are everywhere throughout the United States, so you don't have to go directly to the VA. You can go to the VA adjacent vet centers and, and seek resources, whether you're a veteran yourself or a military family trying to you know help a loved one out. Yep. Appreciate you sharing that because that is some more good news. The VA has gotten better and better, and kudos to the leadership there that has, have, been, have been driving that change. Still, hey, it's still a journey. No finish oh, line. Oh, yeah, it's a long way to go. But, right. Um, I, think, I think nowadays we're doing a lot better than um, – I, I, I hear from the older vets, um, the Vietnam vets that I had the pleasure to be on the trail with and shoot the shit with. Uh, like, um, I can tell you a story. Uh, John Caravella, he's a, he's a vet out here in Atlanta, and uh, he, he's helped me out a lot. But he has a story about his time meeting some sailors because he was Army, and this is Vietnam. He was like, so, you know, I went to the officer's little place, and, you know, met a Navy vet officer, and he was like, hey, come down to the, to the Navy's uh, officer's uh, quarters or whatnot, whatever they had, hangout spot that the officers had. So I was like, all right. So, you know, the next day he goes there. He's in his, you know, fatigue, dirty, smell like the jungle. And it's like, I get to the, you know, Navy officers, like, you know, quarters, and, like, they got jet skis, they got, like, deck, it's all decadent, the little club they, they're at. 
it's fucking fantastic. Very different from what I was doing. So I'm like, you fucking Navy guys. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like Navy officers. <laughs> Living a high life while, while, while everybody else does the work. Good, good, good stuff for him. So I appreciate you sharing and, and really just being transparent about your transition. I think that's going to be helpful to a lot of folks listening and eye-opening for a lot of non-veterans that are trying to understand more of the experiences that, that many of our, our veteran brothers and sisters go through. So let's, let's pivot. I hate using that. It's such a cliche. Let, let's transition a bit to what you do now and the great things you're doing with Sierra Club Military Outdoors. So talk about what you do and, and your role and how you're helping. The Sierra Club Military Outdoors has been around since 2006. And when I joined and started working there in 2016, we were all about big, big outdoor adventure trips. So you're talking about rafting Grand Canyon, uh, rafting the Green River. And we, we got some new leadership and kind of changed it to like focusing on nearby nature and, and local outdoors. So you can be, you have an adventure right near your own home. It could be your, you know, local park, your state park. You don't have to go. So we think of these outdoors and we think of these far out places, people, you know, going to Denali in, in Alaska, but you can go right in your own, your own neck of the woods, whether you live in the Midwest, whether you live down here in the South or you live out West. And what I really, really like about the program is twofold. One is we train veterans to be outdoor leaders and they can lead other veterans outdoors. So I like that empowering, uh, and this is kind of from my social work background. You know, our whole thing is giving our clients self-determination. And I, I like with um, the military doors, that's the, the goal. Our veteran volunteers and, 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 and civilian volunteers also, they lead the charge on the program, what they want to do, how they want to do it. And we're just kind of there to part, impart the wisdom of the Sierra Club on them. And, and, I like that. and also another thing I like about it is the Sierra Club is the largest and oldest environmental organization in the United States. So a lot of things we do, are political. We, we got a big office in D.C. Um, and Chicago and all over the country. We do a lot of lobbying of state and local governments along with the federal government. But one thing I said, I would quit at the Sierra Club Military Doors was like, if we got our volunteers and our goal was to get them involved with other things at the Sierra Club. And that was our own main goal. And I was like, they have to want to do that. If they want to get involved with conservation work that's absolutely fine, but let them decide. If they want to get involved with some of the political work that the Sierra Club does, that's absolutely fine, but it should be up to the volunteers, not up to us trying to recruit them for that. We should recruit them to enjoy, explore, and protect the planet and enjoy the outings and become outings leaders that they choose to, that they want to volunteer in some other type of way, whether that's being a spokesperson, an advocate, or just bringing folks to the Sierra Club military outdoors because they had great experiences. That's what I want. I don't want, like, you have to come to the Sierra Club to become a Sierra Club member and get involved with our political work or our conservation work. The, the being outside nature and seeing the places that we need to protect or maintain should be enough to get people to go to that. And, and we've had, and we've had some great veteran volunteers who have advocated about uh, preserving wild spaces and also talking about the healing power of nature. So we're really proud about that. We got this Avro bill that just passed. And hopefully, um, if it becomes official, we can do this on a grander scale than what the Sierra Club is capable of. Understanding. Federal, federal push behind that um, healing through nature. And we don't want to say that nature therapy is for everybody and that it can replace traditional talk therapy or medicine because those things are needed. But we want to say that this could be a supplement. And, and what I like with our whole program transitioning from the big rock star trips, what we call them. We still like those. You know, it's fun. 
climbing a mountain or on ice climbing or, or whitewater rafting, but also just being like, hey, you can go to your nearby park or local state park, and it's right there, and you can take a group of vets and have a good time and enjoy yourself. Getting outside and, and stepping away from technology devices and and email and Zoom calls, <laughs> no offense to any of those platforms, but man, just take a deep breath and just, it helps you keep things in perspective at a minimum. So I love, I love to hear some of the neat ways that you and your organization are taking all of those therapeutic effects and, and tailwinds uh, and apply and helping use that with veterans that are trying to overcome some of these things you've, you've, you've mentioned. So keep up the great work there. I love that. We'll make sure folks know how to connect with you on all that, but let's keep, keep driving here. I want to uh, dive into the topic of social justice and, and we're not going to be able to do it justice in the little bit of time we've got here, Yeah. but I know it's something you're passionate about. I'd love to learn and kind of gain your insights and perspective. You know, let's talk about your experiences and let's talk about a few things that, that we need to change together in the weeks and months ahead. It's kind of interesting because, you know, um, my first career experience was joining the military and it's a very, you know, hyper-masculine culture, you know, we're in a business war. It's, there's no other way to put it. And, you know, if we said anything else, we'd be lying. You know, we have to, uh, that Navy chaplain put it like this. It's like, Hey, you know, we, we can all be pacifists, but you know, in the, in the, in the world, in the real world we live in, there are, you know, aggressors out there and you, we have to protect, you know, your borders. And then that's just how humans organize themselves. So I understand that. So I transitioned and ended up to going, becoming a social worker. So that was a very different experience because, that of all the piss and vinegar, you're, you know, kind of talking about your feelings, talking about helping other people. And it's a, a very stark divide. You know, when I was in, getting recruited for the Navy, they asked me, did I want to go on submarines? And then the recruiter was like, the petty officer was like, there are no women on submarines. So I was like, nope, I don't want to go on submarines. <laughs> and ironically, when I joined and got, got, you know, to my duty station in USS Cleveland, it was an all-male ship. So... <laughs> There I go. So I, I was, I was, it was around a bunch of guys all the time. Nothing wrong with that, but, you know, that's where it was. Where social work school was the exact opposite. And I think what really kind of led me to this social justice land was uh, my grandmother. And unfortunately, she passed away in 2002. But um, she was a big, she was a pillar of the community. It was a heat wave in 1997. Killed a lot of people in uh, Chicago, including my grandmother on my father's side. And during that summer, she drove around in the, the community different parts of Chicago on the south side, dropping off uh, food for elderly individuals, um, bought people some air conditioners. Uh, she was a president of the Eden Green Co-op when that existed at that time. She was involved with a lot of um, political campaigns and, and heavily involved in her church, New St. Peter, Church of God in Christ. And she was just a woman who, who did a lot for the community. She, she even oversaw a school, I mean, a, a breakfast and lunch program for the young people and it was for youth in the community during, uh, during the summertime. So that was at the community center. So you go there and get some lunch. And, and she would always bring, like, bags of lunch and stuff like that. And she was old school. So, like, uh, when my brother would have our little muscle shirts on, and, you know, you know we're, we're 14, 13, 14 years old. It's like, put on a, put on a shirt. We, we see Grandma come in a red van, we run and put on that shirt. But I think that she instilled that kind of sense of, like, helping others and doing the right thing, not because it makes you feel better or make you better than anybody, but because you have to do that. Because, you know, I'm not religious like my grandmother is, but I still think as human beings, no matter if you're the richest person in the world or the prettiest person, whatever, 
somebody helped you get to that point. Someone had to raise you as a child. You know, when we were born, we're all helpless. So it's, we, our species would not be here with it not for us working together. So I think that's the most important thing. But I think my grandmother instilled that in me. And kind of transitioning from the military to school of social work was very different because, like I said, it was, it was a more, you know, female-oriented place. And, you know, certain things I couldn't say <laughs> as a vet <laughs> or wanted to say you know, without, like, offending people. Um, so, but it also made me learn. It made me learn how to, in this work, interact with um, the opposite sex and also learn about other communities that I'm not part of. So, you know, I'm a straight guy who is a vet, but I understand that there's, you know, struggles, with, you know, the LGBT community, um, struggles, you know, with the women, and then you talk about race. And one of the big things nowadays is the Black Lives Matter movement. And thinking a lot about that uh, as an African-American male, having that experience, having been, you know, my own self pulled over and harassed, yelled at, had guns pointed at me by, you know, police officers on routine traffic stops. You know, at that time, they weren't seeing that I was a, you know, a social worker, a graduate of the University of Chicago, a Navy vet. You know, they saw a black man and, you know, they acted accordingly. And I, I wish, you know, in the perfect world, you know, people would just be judged based on who they are and how they interact with other people. But the world we live in, people, you know, how you look, how you identify, who you love, who you're attracted to, those things can be a life or death sentence. And I think that's why it's important to me. Not because I feel like myself is some savior, but you know, learning about men like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, women like Ida B. Wells, they all had a sense of it was some unfairness in the world, and they took it upon themselves as private citizens to, to change things. And one thing is the vet, veteran community has involved in a lot of these social change movements. People don't know that. Like Cesar Chavez, the great uh, labor organizer right. from California, he's a Navy vet. A. Philip Randolph, I believe he was an Army vet. A lot of the men involved, with, the men and women involved with the uh, civil rights movements. A lot of them were veterans of World War II. So we've always had this, we've always had this sense of service. You know, you serve in the military, you serve your country. When you get out of the military, you still want to serve your community. So I, I think that's, a, that's an important thing. And, and I'm, I'm be honest, I joined the military, part of the reason, uh, to see the world. But also my mom, you know, we came from a working class background. My brother was struggling to try to stay in college. We didn't have money. She's like, I, I can't afford to send you to college. I don't know what you're going to do. I can't, I can't pay, I can't possibly afford college. So my options was, you know, find a job, still work at my same job, or, you know, join the military to get money for college to, to get that so-called American dream. So that, that's the reason why I joined. Going back to this notion of service, I, I really I appreciate what you shared there. I think military members and veterans do have a strong legacy of, of continuing their service even after they kind of hang up the uniform and yeah. our country wouldn't be, well, we got plenty of plenty of heavy lifting still to do, no doubt about it. And, and uh, we'll have to have you back and we can dive deeper into this topic in particular, but I admire the service that you have been continuing since you exited the Navy in 2005. If you had, if you had an audience of folks that really were open-minded, which is part of the challenge we have that are willing to be empathetic and, and understanding your journey you just shared and not just their own, which that's another challenge we have. What are some, you know, we can't get all the way into, into solutions and some of the deepest issues we have. But what are what are some initial steps that you would share with folks to challenge them 
to, as, to, to make progress so that we can, we can at least have a dialogue? Where do we start? I think sometimes it's, it's those hard conversations, whether it's a friend, a family member, and they say something, excuse me, that perhaps would be offensive and inappropriate. And, it's, and I, and I want to kind of dove into this kind of idea of cancel culture. It, it's not saying that we need to cancel people or anything like that or just kind of disown them because they're insensitive. And it's not about people being sensitive. I'm a vet. You're a vet. We talk shit all the time. Uh, it, it's what we do. But at the same token, it's a difference between, you know, shooting the shit, talking shit, and being hateful towards another group of people because they're different from you, whether that's, you know, someone who's part of the LGBT community, uh, whether that's, you know, you're a man and you're, you know, you, you have a strong dislike of women, which is weird because you know, we all have mothers. And, and not only just the fact that we have mothers, but if, you, if you're a straight man, you're dating, so most likely you're going to be dating women. Um, so you have to deal with women you date. But I think just kind of challenging those notions, um, whether you have attitudes about people of different religions, different races, it's kind of having those hard conversations. And sometimes they're not going to go well, but I think that's the first step. And it's not to cancel people, it's to educate them. And it's not in a way, if you come there like, I'm better than you because I feel this way and you don't. It's more coming there like, hey, this is what it is, and we should talk about that. And if I had an audience of people, I'd just be like, even if you never experienced those things, try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think Tupac said something that was really insightful, and he, was, he died as a young man, he was 25. But he's like, I wish that all the poor people could switch places for one year with all the rich people, and they can see how each other lives, and then go back to that the next year, and we'll see the world completely change. And, yeah. and I agree with that, because sometimes we just can't put ourselves in someone else's shoes until we're in that, in that position. It's powerful. It's, it's one of the most powerful ways to learn and become educated and to see life through other people's lens and experiences and journey. I, I want to ask you one final question about this. And again, we're going to, um, we're trying our best to help facilitate it while we, while we're, while we're learning, frankly, I mean, you know, I wish I had a lot more answers, but we're trying our role. We're trying to help facilitate some of the, the at times uncomfortable, frank conversations and dialogue that that hopefully we're all filling up those gaps we all have in our in our awareness and and perspective what really got me a a few weeks back is brian errington who's with a great great veterans group talked about his experiences and what really got me was he talked about having the talk with his dad and it really it is it i wish more folks would take a minute to to understand what he meant and what other people mean about having the talk. So did, was that a moment that you have, that you had in your journey? And, and if, if not, or if so, can you share that a little bit? Because I, I think about bridging perspectives, that really, I think, gets people's, it should get people's attention. I mean, I've had a lot, a lot of tough conversations over the years with, with different people, um, some very heated, some, some not. I don't think kind of social media is a tool where, you know, people kind of yell at each other, talk over each other. But I think when it comes to like, you know, close friends, family members and, and having those, those talks, I remember one time, um, you know, they had a family get together and family were kind of talking about, you know, gay men in a very kind of derogatory way. And, you know, I, I vehemently disagreed and we had a conversation about it and, you know, there's some jokes made about me and all this stuff. But, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a gay man. I, you know, I don't know what that experience is like because that hasn't been my experience. 
And they were just like, hey, you know, at the end of the day, these are, these are folks too. And even though it's jokes, you know, it can lead to worse things for individuals who are part of that community and, mm-hmm. and it has, as we've seen from history. It's just like someone who makes a racist joke. We've seen those things escalate to, um, you know, people being killed. It is not easy, especially when it's like family members or people you're close to and you love and respect and you care about. It's just kind of holding your ground and having a having a conversation. And maybe even if they don't agree with you on that moment, it's not about that. It's not about winning people over. It's not it's not a debate. It's just kind of like maybe you can open their perspective. And be like, all right, you know, I may not be a part of this group. I may not be a part of this religion. If one person opens their eyes or has a different thought based on what you share and drawing kind of drawing a line in the sand or just giving frank feedback, hey, that puts us a little, puts us a little bit closer to where we, we need to be, where there's opportunities and, and, and justice truly for all. And uh, I know I appreciate your passion. I appreciate what you shared, and, and we'll have to continue that conversation. I, I admire, again, your acting. You know, we get so much lip service these days, unfortunately, across the spectrum, you know, veteran circles, non-veteran circles, business, you name it. But I really appreciate your sense of action and service and helping so many other veterans in their journey. So I really appreciate that, Lornette. Let's make sure you've got, you've got no shortage of projects, and I love it, man. I don't think you sit still for a second. I love what you do with the Sierra Club, Military Outdoors. You've kind of described some of that. But you've got some also. You've got a, a podcast. You've got a website where you're having some uh, really interesting conversations. Talk a little bit about that and make sure folks know how to connect to other things you're doing. Oh, yeah. Well, first and foremost, uh, whoever, all the people listening to your podcast, one thing they can all honestly get behind is, is the fact of homeless veterans. Um, so that should, left, right, whatever your political persuasion, that should be something we should all be fighting to get rid of, and, and the veteran suicides, those, those two things, the 22 a day, and the, the, I think almost 100,000 veterans on the streets at night mm. in this country, which is one veteran homeless is, is unacceptable. So that's, that should be a bipartisan, across the spectrum, issue that we all should be fighting for. But um, if folks want to get in touch with me, I'm Lorenette Vesto, you can get link, my LinkedIn page. Um, the Evolving Man Project is a personal website that I started, has no affiliation or whatsoever with the Sierra Club or the Sierra Club Military Outdoors. So all views and opinions expressed there are my own. But um, the website is just designed to kind of talk about issues that impact men, um, in particular black, indigenous, and, and men of color. And Question Culture is a podcast I started with a, a college friend of mine, Brian, and we question conventional wisdom around different topics. So uh, <laughs> we started off with the two-party system. The last one was Black Lives Matter. I think the next one coming up will be about climate change and um, climate change denial. Y'all jump right out and tackle some of the, the, the tougher topics, huh? Yeah, yeah. We just we, we, we figured, we, you know, let's like Dave Chappelle had his first TV show where he played the black, white supremacist and start off with a bang. We, we, we figured we got to go in them a deep end and see if we sink or swim. So I think we're treading water. So um, you can check out Question Culture. You can check out EvolvingManProject.com, and you can find that, that there. And um, some of the articles written by myself and other contributors to that website. And, um, you know, leave a comment, <laughs> whether you like it, love it, hate it, whatever. So that was evolvingman.com. Is that right? Yeah, evolvingmanproject.com. Sorry. And the podcast name is Question Culture, right? Yep. And they can search for that. and, and You can find it on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, Question Culture and uh, Evolving Man Project. Love it. All right. And, and one final question. Those projects are not affiliated 
with the Sierra Club Military Outdoors. But if they wanted, if folks wanted to really plug in with what you're doing there, Outdoors for All, which I'm not sure if we mentioned that phrase, but love that. How can folks learn more about that? Folks who want to learn more about the Sierra Club Military Outdoors, um, you can always go to the sierraclubmilitaryoutdoors.org. Check out our website. You can go to the Sierra Club website, the national website, and that will give you a link to the Sierra Club Military Outdoors. And also, folks can reach me via email. So my first name, .vestal at sierraclub.org. And um, if you got a question about that, how to get involved, how to become a volunteer, feel free to reach out to me. We soon will be launching a campaign, uh, Vets for Essential Workers. And what that campaign is all about was the brainchild of one of our great volunteers, uh, an OG Army vet named Pete Johnson, who's a good friend of mine, and we, we share war stories all the time. <laughs> and uh, he was like, hey, how do we you know, help out the people on the front lines uh, in the medical uh, field and also people at the grocery store, um, folks who all are deemed essential. They need hazardous duty pay. Um, they might need child care. So our campaign is going to use veterans to lift their voice to uplift essential workers. And also lots of vets and military folks, they're essential workers these days. So it's vets helping vets and helping their community. I love that. Vets for essential workers. We'll, we'll have to learn a lot more about that. That's one of hopefully the silver linings of this pandemic where a lot more attention and recognition and appreciation for all of these frontline workers, whether it's healthcare or retail or first responders or supply chain, you name it. All these folks yeah. are, are risking their own health to keep us moving forward and protecting our psyche. So we'll learn a lot more about that. Of course, you can connect with Lornette of Estal on LinkedIn as well. That's where I think one of, the, one of the first places we connected. And we'll make sure to list the URLs really simply in the show notes. We try to, Lornette, we try to uh, protect the one-click rule, right? Folks aren't going to click 17 times these days, so we try to really make it easy and make it about the one-click. Work smarter, not harder. <laughs> well, really appreciate you sharing so much today. Um, I learned so much. I really enjoyed reconnecting with you. Uh, we've been talking with Lornette Vestal, Southeastern Campaign Representative with Sierra Club Military Outdoors. You can also check out a variety of his projects and his podcast, Question Culture, which is not affiliated, but there's so much good stuff you're going on you're, that you're, you're leading, Lornette, and uh, we look forward to having you back on here and getting an update real soon. All right, well, thank you, Scott, for having me on. You bet. So to our audience, hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation with Lornette Vestal as much as I have. The service and what he's doing, the conversations he's driving, the service he is he's delivering after his time in the military, it's, it's inspiring. So hopefully you all appreciate it as much as I did. On behalf of our entire team here at Veteran Voices, hey, we invite you to find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn if you're a veteran with a story to tell. Hey, reach out, and we'll try to work into our programming. It's really important to us. Scott Luton wishing our listeners nothing but the best. Hey, challenge you like we challenge ourselves. Do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on Veteran Voices. Thanks, for everybody.